remain standing in honor of God's Word. This morning we're going to look at Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 17. Taking a one-week hiatus from the book of Acts to celebrate Reformation Sunday as we reflect on why we're Protestants and not Catholics and the difference that that makes. And the verse that was key in bringing about the Reformation in many ways is the last verse, verse 17, but I'll begin reading at verse 8. Romans 1, beginning at verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation to both Greeks and to barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written. The righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And Father, we thank You for the miraculous work specifically of Romans 1.17. What it did for Martin Luther. What it did for the Reformation. And the truth is we are here today in part because of that glorious work in the past. So, Father, may we not forget how You have worked in the past, just as You commanded the Israelites not to forget how You worked in the past. Because as Larry said in his prayer, our past is Your past. Thank You that we are a part of Your story. So, Father, help us to appreciate our past and how we have gotten here. Help us to understand how You are in our midst today. And help us also to see the glorious future that lies before us. Father, work this morning in a great way. And again, we ask that you would do this for the sake of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. A couple of summers ago, I took a class with uh, Dr. R.C. Sproul and R.C. Sproul Jr. And I don't think I'll ever be able to forget how he began the class. He began by asking us two questions. First question he asked was, since we're all Protestants, what are you protesting? And just in case you kids don't know, to be a Protestant uh, is to be a protester. That's where the word comes from. So there were about 12 of us students. So he went right around the class and he asked what we were protesting and We all gave different answers. Uh, We were protesting the sale of indulgences that the Catholic Church was selling for the forgiveness of sins. 
we were protesting rampant immorality in the priesthood. And most notably, we were protesting the false gospel of the Catholic Church, a gospel of faith plus works for salvation. And then after going around the classroom, he went back the other way with another question. He said, what is the gospel? And one by one, we explained the gospel. Perhaps in its simplest form, it could be understood as uh, justification by sinners, uh, by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ, who lived a perfectly righteous life who died on a cross atoning for our sin, was raised on the third day, and 40 days hence He ascended into heaven where right now He is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That is the Gospel. Now, after He asked us those two questions, and we gave our answers to those two questions, He said, I noticed that some of you, in referring to Rome or Catholicism, referred to the Roman Catholic Church. And judging by the tone in his voice, I could tell that he did not appreciate that attribution. He said, the Roman Catholic institution denies the gospel of Jesus Christ. He made parallels with the Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, He said, these groups deny essential elements of the Christian faith, such as the Trinity or the deity of Christ. And because of a denial of those essential elements, we do not consider those groups church. And then he said, as clear as can be, the gospel is essential. No one in the class had to ask for clarification. Now, we Protestants especially who are heirs of Martin Luther, John Calvin, and the Reformation should not be surprised by such a strong statement. We should understand that the Reformers broke away from Rome, from Catholicism, not because of some minor details of doctrine that they disagreed with, They broke away from the church at that time because of the Gospel. What was at stake in the Reformation? The Gospel of Jesus Christ was at stake. Now, shortly following the Reformation, many of the Reformers wrestled with the question of what qualifies a church to be a true church. In other words, what are the marks of a genuine church? And in one famous confession, the Belgic Confession, this is what they stated. The true church can be recognized if it has the following marks. And they mentioned three. The church engages in the pure preaching of the gospel. It makes use of the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. And third, it practices church discipline for correcting faults. In short, it governs itself according to the pure Word of God, rejecting all things contrary to it it, and holding to Jesus Christ as the only head. By these marks, he can be assured of recognizing the true church, and no one ought to be separated from it. 
So very simply, what makes a church a true church? It preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ, exercises the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and it exercises church discipline in its midst. Now, this begs the question, of course, what is the pure gospel? Or what is the biblical gospel? And you need to understand that at this point, Rome went in one direction and the Reformers went in another direction. They cannot both be right. And we can get at the heart of the Reformation and the Gospel by focusing on the doctrine of justification. The doctrine of justification. If you were to ask me what brought about the Reformation, it was basically the rediscovery of the doctrine of justification by Martin Luther. This is what Luther said. This article of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, is the head and cornerstone of the church, which alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and protects the church. Without it, the church cannot subsist for one hour. And then following Martin Luther, John Calvin, who Luther referred to simply as the theologian, also said that justification is the main hinge on which true religion turns. Justification is indeed the article on which the church stands or falls, as Luther also said. Now, to make sure that we are crystal clear on how important the doctrine of justification by faith is, realize it answers the greatest question of all. The question that confronts every single individual. And this is the question. How can unrighteous, sinful human beings ever hope to stand in the presence of a holy God. Or to make it real simple so that even the kids can understand it, it answers this question. If you die tonight, how can you know that you will go to heaven? That's the question that the doctrine of justification by faith answers. Now, as evangelicals, when we hear that question, we say, well... The answer is very simple. Uh, we need to be forgiven by Jesus Christ. And we do need to be forgiven by Jesus Christ. But you also need to realize that that is only one side of the doctrine of justification. Because we not only need to be forgiven, but we need to have righteousness. If we're going to stand before God, we need righteousness. Sometimes justification is defined this way. It's a simple way to remember it. Um, just as if I had never sinned. What does it mean to be justified? It's for God to look at us, forgiven, just as though we had never sinned. And I say, that's a good start. That covers half the definition of justification. But we need more than just forgiveness. Because we need to be more than just in a place of neutrality before God. If God forgives us of all our sins, then we're neutral before God. But we need a positive righteousness credited to our accounts. And let me remind you of the gospel as it's defined in Romans 1, 16 and 17. Notice very carefully what Paul said. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, 
For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it, speaking of the gospel, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So, what is revealed in the gospel according to verse 17? The righteousness of God. Two of you saw it. Did the rest of you see it? (laughs) The righteousness of God is revealed. So, if you and I are ever to hope to stand in the presence of a holy God, we need righteousness. And to make sure you understand what I'm talking about when I say righteousness, we need a perfect, flawless righteousness. For you baseball fans, Mark Santner means you need to bat 100%. If you want a more biblical answer, let me give you Romans 2.13 where the Apostle Paul lays out one way to be righteous or justified before God. He said, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So if you want to be righteous before God, if you want to be justified before God, and by the way, those those terms are the same. Don't let me confuse you. Uh, To be declared justified is to be declared forgiven and to be seen as righteous. Okay? It's to be declared righteous, we could say. It's a legal term. So you're not just declared innocent, but you are declared positively righteous. But if you want to be righteous before God and you want to do it on your own, then Paul tells us what we have to do. We have to obey the law perfectly. And if you sin just one time, James tells us in 2.10, that whoever keeps the law but fails at one point has come accountable for all of it. So, one sin. One time you take the name of the Lord your God in vain. One time you take something that doesn't belong to you and you steal it. One time and you disrespect your parents. One time and you covet something your neighbor has. One time and you gossip about your neighbor and God says you're not justified. You're not righteous. You're condemned and you're sinful. You have broken the whole law. You say, just because I sinned once... Yes, you break the whole law. It's as though we have this this huge window and it has all all these different things. And a kid takes a baseball and he throws it to the window and it breaks one of the paints. The whole window has to be replaced. We sin one time, we're condemned, and we're seen as unrighteous. What we need is perfect righteousness and we don't have it. Isaiah 64, 6 says, we all have become like one who is unclean and all our quote-unquote righteous acts are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind sweep us away. So one sin and we are unrighteous. What is our hope? The Gospel, where we can have a righteousness 
that comes from God and not from ourselves. The historic spark that ignited the Protestant Reformation came on October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther nailed his now famous 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door. Luther was responding in part to the selling of papal indulgences by Johann Tetzel, a Dominican priest. Tetzel represented Albert of Mans, who had received his authority from Pope Leo X. Albert of Mans was seeking a second bishopric and the title of Archbishop, which came at a price paid to the Pope. Pope Leo X needed funds to rebuild St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Thus, the grotesque sale of indulgence became the means for these crooked religious leaders to obtain their selfish ends. Uh, Luther most likely was not aware of all the machinations taking place behind the scenes. What Luther observed was that poor peasants were being taken advantage of. And they were being manipulated to give what little money they had in order to buy indulgences for the forgiveness of their sins. And by the way, the church was also selling these indulgences for the sins of those who had already died. So a tremendous guilt trip was laid on the people of God. They should purchase indulgences so that they could be forgiven. And also, if they really cared about their relatives, their parents, their aunts and uncles, their grandparents, if they really cared about them, then they would also give money so that they could be saved. And as you could see, very simply, what we had was a craft buying of our salvation. And Luther was absolutely outraged by this. Tetzel even had a famous ditty to help people to understand what was taking place. And it went like this. As soon as a coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. So as a reminder, as soon as you take your precious coins and you throw them in the, the coffer and there's a ringing sound, you can be assured that souls from purgatory are springing. You are buying their salvation. Luther was absolutely repulsed by this. But at this time, he didn't have an answer to the problem. He just saw the problem. He didn't have an answer. That answer came a few years later when he was studying Paul's epistle to the Romans. Now, prior to that experience, Luther confessed that he did not love God, but that he actually hated God. Luther admitted that God appeared to him as an angry, unappeasable despot. When Luther was in the monastery, he said, I did not think about women, money, or possessions. Instead, my heart trembled and fidgeted about whether God would bestow His grace on me. For I had strayed from faith and could not but imagine that I had angered God, whom I in turn had to appease by doing good work. And here was the problem. Luther tried to do good work after good work after good work and it was never sufficient. He knew that it was never enough, which is why he hated God because it felt like a cruel trick. Perhaps some of you, whether young or old, have had parents and, and, and you felt like what they required of you was so high that you never lived up to their expectations. You got the best grades that you could possibly get all A's, but you got one B and they point out the B. You're like, not good enough. 
That's how Luther felt. No matter what he did, it wasn't good enough. When he was in the monastery, he stated, if ever man could be saved by his monkery, it would have been I. And that's because he was very serious about his monkery. (laughs) Uh, He did everything that they required of the monks, confessing sin, which he did for two or three hours at a time. Uh, He made all the sacred pilgrimage that were required of him. He did all the good works he could. He did all the acts of penance. Uh, He climbed church stairs on his knees. But none of this brought peace to his guilty conscience. He still knew that it wasn't enough to appease God. So what would answer his dilemma? Romans 1.17 Let me remind you of the verse. For in it, the Gospel, the righteousness of God, or some translations say the justice of God, same thing, the justice of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous or the just shall live by faith. And here is how Luther described his insight into this great passage that brought about his conversion. He said, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God. He said, because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. He said, night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God or the righteousness of God and the statement, the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Whereupon I felt myself reborn and to have gone through open doors of paradise. The whole of Scripture took on new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, is quite literally the gate to heaven. How can sinners such as you and I ever hope to get into heaven? By grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ. And again, it's at this point that Rome and the Reformers parted way. The Reformers talk about the five solas of the Reformation to help us understand very clearly how we are justified before God. How it is that we can stand before God declared righteous. The first sola is sola scriptura, which is simply a reminder that the Bible alone is God's authority in instructing man. Or I should say, God's ultimate authority. Only inspired, inerrant authority. Not the Bible and the church. The church has erred. Councils have contradicted. 
one another. So the Reformers said it is God's Word alone that we are to lean upon. And then they stressed the fact that we are saved by sola gratia, grace alone. Emphasizing the fact that we are saved by God's grace alone and not any of our works. Which also ties in to sola fide. Faith alone. Not faith and works, but faith alone in solus Christus, Jesus Christ alone. We are trusting in Him alone. How He lived, how He died on our behalf, we are trusting in that alone and not anything in and of ourselves. So the solas are just emphasizing the fact again and again and again that justification, a righteous standing before God is solely by grace, solely by faith, solely by Jesus Christ and His perfect life and death on our behalf. Which brings us to the final sola, sola deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. And if you understand that this is all a result of what God has done for us in Christ, then it only stands to reason that then God gets all the glory. And that's very significant. Because at the end of the day, when you think about the great salvation that you have, you want to say, praise God, and you don't want to take any of the credit. You don't want to say, yeah, God did His part, but by the way, I did my part too, you know. You did your part. The only thing you contributed to your salvation was the sin from which you needed to be saved. Otherwise, God did a marvelous work in you. Now, at this point, uh, Rome is going to say, well, wait a second, what about the place of works? And the Reformers will quote such passages as Romans 3.28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Couldn't be any clearer, right? Paul states it very simply. One is justified by faith apart from any works of the law. But what does James 2.24 say? Maybe you want to turn ahead to James 2.24. James 2.24 You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And all of a sudden, you could see why there could be a clash between these two sides. And you might want to say, well, who's right? Paul or James? Paul right or James right? They can't both be right. Or can they both be right? I maintain that they are both right. Uh, When James talks about works, he's talking about works that validate true faith. Here's Paul's point. You're justified by faith apart from any works. Here's James' point. You are justified by faith. But make sure that the faith that you have is a genuine faith. And if this faith doesn't result in a change of life, if it doesn't result in works flowing from that faith, then you're not justified 
Not because you didn't work enough, but because your faith wasn't genuine. That's very important. James 2.18 But someone will say, You have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. I will show you my faith by my works. My life will show that I have real faith. And we've seen that in the ministry of, of Jesus. Remember the the paralytic who was who was held on a mat and his four friends came. They probably each were holding a corner and they couldn't get into the house. So they, they dug a hole in the roof and they, and they came down through the house. And it says, Jesus saw their faith and said to the paralytic man, your faith has forgiven you. How could Jesus see their faith? Because of what they were doing, bringing this man to Jesus made it very clear that they had faith. You can see faith in people's lives. It will manifest itself in how they live. They live differently after they come to faith in Christ. And James' concern is that people have genuine faith. Because many people who say they have faith don't really have saving faith. In verse 19, he says, You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. What's his point? Yes, you should believe that there is one God. One God existing in three persons. You should believe that. That alone does not save you. The demons believe in the Trinity. The demons believe in the deity of Christ. The demons believe in the atonement of Christ for the sin of mankind. Do you know that the demons could sign our church doctrinal statements? They, they agree with all our doctrines. And in fact, and maybe this is a terrifying thought, they could even help us with our doctrine. But that's not sufficient. Which is why the Reformers, when they talked about faith, uh, went to great lengths to describe what true faith really is. Sometimes pedantic lengths. But they wanted to make it real clear. Uh, in talking about true faith, they said there are at least three essential components. Noticia, census, and fiducia. Sorry, everything during the Reformation was in Latin. That was, just, <laughs> that was just the theological language of the day. Noticia refers to knowledge. If people are going to be saved, if they're going to have true faith, they have to have correct knowledge. They have to have the facts of the Gospel. Jesus dying for our sins, being raised on the third day is a bare minimum. But that is not sufficient. They also have to have a census. That's the next level. Um, we could call this mere intellectual assent. We could call this, if we want to be provocative, demonic faith. This is what James is referring to when he says even the demons believe that. And I can understand this because this is the faith that I had for many years before I was converted. I understood who Jesus was. I understood what He had done on the cross. But I didn't have the third element, which is absolutely crucial, fiducia, which is personal trust. You have the knowledge. You say, yes, those are the facts. And then you put your trust in those facts and it changes your life. Consider this illustration. 
missionary was sitting at his desk, desperately looking for a word. He was translating the Gospel of John into the language of an African tribe, but he didn't know what their word for faith was. While he was pondering, a member of the tribe came into the missionary's hut, threw himself into a chair, and uttered an expression which meant, I'm leaning all my weight in this chair. At once the missionary said, that's it. That's my word. It's resting all your weight in Jesus Christ. You know the chair is there. You know the chair can support your weight. But then you finally sit in the chair, trusting in the chair completely. True faith will trust in Jesus Christ completely, knowing that they are forgiven. Knowing that they are saved. So what happens when you put your trust in Jesus Christ? Let me make it as simple as I can. 2 Corinthians 5.21 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake... He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. We could call this the great exchange. When Jesus hung on a cross, God placed our sin upon Him. That's why it says, He who knew no sin, because He never sinned. He who knew no sin became sin. He took upon Himself our sin. For what reason? So that in Him, we might become, not just forgiven, that we might become the righteousness of God. So here's how it works very simply. And again, I think even the kids can understand this. When you understand that you're a sinner, when you understand that Jesus died for you, when you ask for forgiveness, when you put your faith in Christ, it's as though you're handing all your sin over to Him. And He says, okay, I'll take that. I'll nail it to the cross. But not only does He take your sin, but Jesus gives us His righteousness. His righteousness. So we're not just morally neutral. We are positively righteous. And here's the implication. It means that God accepts us just as much as He accepts His own Son. Do you realize that? If you've put your faith in Christ, if you are the recipient of His righteousness, you are loved by God. You are accepted by God just as much as Jesus is accepted by God. Do you see that? I, I bet some of you are struggling with that. That's why this doctrine is so important. You and I are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. We are in Him. What does it mean to be in Him? We are part of Christ. We are connected to Him. 
God cannot love you any more than He loves you right now. He cannot accept you any more than He accepts you right now. He embraces you just as much as He embraces His own Son because you are in Jesus Christ. You have His righteousness. It's just it's as though you get to heaven and, and, and God says, I, I see you have righteousness. That's, it's very important because you need righteousness if you're going to get into heaven. So let, let me see the righteousness that you have. And God opens it up. He says, ah, okay, very good. I see that when you were 12 years old, you submitted to your parents. Very good. Ah, I see that later. You walked on water. That's impressive. Fed the 5,000. Fed the 4,000. Delivered those who were oppressed by demons. That's what it means to have the righteousness of Christ. It means that His righteous life is credited to our accounts. Our lousy life is given to Him and His perfectly righteous life is given to us so that God sees a perfect righteousness in us. And this is the Gospel. The righteousness of God is given to us through faith. And it's Jesus' works, not our works. You know what? If you're trusting in your works at all, this, this is why faith and works doesn't doesn't work. It, it seems, okay, faith, but works. But if you really hold to that, then it's like, okay, I believe in Jesus, but now I also have to perform good works. The question that will always ha- haunt you is how, how many good works? How, how much is enough? Because remember, the righteousness has to be a positively perfect, flawless righteousness. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking to a man. I, I won't give you the context, but he, he heard that I was a pastor and he mentioned that he was Lutheran and uh, in the context of our conversation that he, he was um, working as hard as he could so that he could get to heaven. And I said, oh, no. I said, because your works have to be perfect. You, you could never do enough. I said, what... What did Luther say about works? He said they didn't, they didn't work. I said, yeah, so what do we need according to Luther? We have to believe. And I said, yeah, we have to believe. Faith alone is our only hope. And when we have that, then we, all, we have all we need. And we have complete assurance before God that we are welcomed and accepted and loved by Him. And then it's in that type of freedom that we can joyfully do good works. Because now we're not trying to earn anything. You're just kind of like saying, thank you. You've done so much for me. It's a joy for me. The love of Christ compels me to do what I do. We're we're free to do good works because we're not trying to earn anything. And this is why we love being Protestants. Because we enjoy this freedom, this love and acceptance. This is why we love the solas of the Reformation. Not just because we love Latin phrases, because we think they're neat. Even though they are kind of fun. But because we understand the reality of what these phrases mean for our standing before God. Let's close in prayer.
Father, how thankful we are for the gospel, for your righteousness that comes to those who live by faith. Father, thank you for the faith that we have. Father, I pray that every single one of us in this room will realize in no uncertain terms that our works are not sufficient for salvation. Only the works of Christ are. His life and His death. And Father, may we never turn away from looking to Christ for our acceptance with You. Father, may we never, may we never think that we have to live good lives to somehow come into Your good graces. It doesn't work that way. Father, help us to see that. Help us to enjoy all the blessings that come about because of this great central Reformation doctrine. In Jesus' name. Amen.